What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. It's Pride Month, and we're spending intentional time this month, as we do every month, tracking movement for queer liberation and the processes that try to muzzle the rights of our queer families. This morning, we're going to look at a homophobic legislative process going on in Uganda, a country where the law has leaned increasingly conservative, most recently in a law backed by the Ugandan president that went into effect last month. People who are convicted of homosexual acts could be executed or imprisoned for life. Gay sex was already illegal in Uganda, but this new law makes things harsher. People having gay sex can receive sentences of life in prison, quote-unquote promoting homosexuality, whatever that means, can come with a 20-year prison sentence. And if someone is convicted of, quote, aggravated homosexuality, unquote, this is a reference to HIV-positive people who have gay sex, they could be sentenced to death. The law has drawn condemnation from many wealthy countries, including the U.S., but inside Uganda, there's actually some support of the law. Parliamentary Speaker Anita Among supported the president signing the law, saying the president had, quote, answered the cries of our people in signing the bill. Here to help us understand the story and its context is Justine Balia. Justine is the director of the Access to Justice program at Uganda's Human Rights Awareness and Promotion Forum, a local non-governmental organization. She joins us from Kampala, Uganda. Justine, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Pleasure is ours. So let's start by getting some clarity in the law. Can you tell us what the new law really says specifically? I, I know I just gave a summary, but please let me know if there's any more details that would be useful for us to know. The word specifically, it's difficult to define in, uh, in relation to this law. The law is absolutely not a specific thing. We have uh, issued a, a sort of a guiding note on what the law says, but even in that guiding note, we admit very clearly that the majority, the biggest part of the law is not clear at all. It's not very clear what it criminalizes. But what we do know is that it criminalizes consensual sexual relations between adults of the same sex. That's what is defined as homosexuality. And like you said, the penalty for that is life imprisonment. And uh, it also criminalizes aggravated homosexuality, which is uh, where we have um, sex between persons of the same, uh, same sex that happens in circumstances that amount to rape, yes, and defilement, but also um, some strange provisions around engaging in sex with a person of the same sex who suffers from a mental illness, not very defined or with a person engaging in sex with a person of the same sex who is related to the offender, uh, what we call, in, I think that's, that's incest, yeah? So um, there's, there's lots of different, and of course the HIV thing comes in, although they do not define it as HIV, I am assuming to avoid the whole conversation around HIV discrimination. So the provision is having sex with a person who contracts a terminal illness as a result of the sexual encounter. And terminal illness is defined simply as an illness without scientific cure, which could cover a whole host of NCDs and HIV and, of course, hepatitis and the rest. And, uh, yeah, so all that, the penalty for that is death, which actually makes a significant difference in the trial process here in Uganda because of the, the gravity of the offense. It can only be tried by the high court, and the high court tends to have one criminal session a year. 
So the high court sessions that have that will sit this year will, for example, be looking at cases that came to the docket in 2019, 2020. So once a person is charged with an offense that has a maximum penalty of death, they are potentially looking at about three years remand before their case is ever even heard, which comes with its own uh, set of challenges. And then now, uh, of course, we also uh, the law criminalizes what uh, what we call child grooming, uh, which is we think is one of the things that was most critical to the legislators in this process, uh, what they consider to be recruitment of children into homosexuality, uh, that uh, there seems to be a feeling that LGBTQ people in Uganda are collecting children and teaching them how to be gay, I guess. So the punishment for that is for recruitment of children, which is also not very well de not defined at all, so no specifics on what that means, is uh, life imprisonment but also exposing children to pornography, to suggestive images, to sexual contact between persons of the same sex is punishable by 20 years imprisonment. Like renting premises to persons for purposes of homosexuality. That's exactly what it says. And we are assuming that this would extend to just renting to queer people that you know are queer LGBTQ people who live in your premises when you know that they're LGBTQ. Uh, renting to couples, renting to organizations that are working with LGBTQ people, legal aid clinics, uh, health facilities that cater to LGBTQ people, etc. Uh, the punishment for that is seven years imprisonment. And of course, promotion of homosexuality, which again is not specific at all. There's no real way to know what amounts to uh, promotion of homosexuality. But from a wide reading of the section, that section 14 of the act, it would appear that any kind of conversation that is supportive of LGBTQ rights could be considered normalization of homosexuality or encouraging the observance of homosexuality or the normalization of sexual relations between two persons. Uh, so we are worried that this could target, for example, academic discourse around LGBTQ issues, sexuality and gender generally, it, it uh, targets media that is supportive of LGBTQ rights uh, and also targets the work of LGBTQ organizations. Any kind of convening with LGBTQ people, we already have a precedent for this, uh, a court holding that a minister stopping a skills training workshop for LBQ women was justified because that was illegal. It was um, that the, the, the workshop was meant to encourage them to remain immoral in courts. So we imagine that such engagements would also now be considered promotion of homosexuality. In fact, we've been forced to stop quite a bit of uh, the work we've been doing on advocacy engagements and on awareness creation within the community or to tone it down very significantly because that could be considered promotion of homosexuality within the current framing of the law. And um, the law also uh, criminalizes marriage between persons of the same sex. That's in section 10. Previously, of course, it was not recognized, but it was also not a crime in the sense that there was no penalty for it. Now there is a penalty, uh, 10 years imprisonment for marriage, a person of the same sex as one. And uh, apparently this marriage can be either formal or informal, which might, in absence of further explanation, mean that even cohabiting, a gay couple cohabiting, could be considered marriage between persons of the same sex and punishable by up to 10 years imprisonment. Wow. So that's a mouthful and it's a lot. Um, and I want to bring in for our listeners who might be less familiar with the the situation and the politics of Uganda. We're talking about you, you talked about how the potential maximum penalty of death could come around uh, through a higher court that that convenes once a year. For our listeners out of context, are there 
many laws that that follow the death penalty? Is that a common thing that happens in Uganda? The death penalty hasn't been imposed on anyone in more than 25 years. So it as a concept it exists but it doesn't really um, it doesn't really seem to happen in practice a lot. But um, according to guidance from the judicial from the judiciary, death penalties are supposed to be reserved for the most serious of offenses, in, such as treason, terrorism, uh, murder, and yeah. So in Uganda, the death penalty is attached to those offenses, yes, but also to aggravated uh, defilement, which is engaging in sexual conduct with a child below the age of fourteen or um, engaging in sexual conduct with a child while one is HIV positive, or with a child with a disability, or with a child to whom one is um, is related. So that's the, the maximum penalty of death, for instance. Um, so there are some, there are a few, there are a few cases that carry that maximum penalty. Not that, oh, undergravated robbery, for instance, uh, which is just, which is robbery while using a, a dangerous weapon, an offensive weapon, or excessive force. So there are some few instance, instances where the death penalty could be imposed and these cases are always had only by the high court. doesn't actually convene once a year. The high court is actively running throughout the year, but mostly handling appeals and civil matters. They hold what we call criminal sessions, which is where they sit only once a year to hear criminal matters coming to the high court for, to the court for the first time. And those are only cases that have where the maximum punishment is death. So um, according to this law, homosexuality in certain circumstances is on a par basically with murder and with uh, terrorism and treason and you know and should be handled that way so while um, we know for sure that it's very very difficult to convict anybody of engaging in consensual sexual relations with anyone at all you know no 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 complainant and we have tracked these statistics over the last 15 years we know that no conviction for consensual sexual relations between two adults so we know that the, usually what happens is that the arrest itself serves as a punishment that um, I don't know if you follow the social media news here, but every time they arrest somebody that they believe to be queer, immediately the police officers arresting you have become content creators. They want to take videos and put up, put it up on TikTok, put it on the news. The local council leaders mm. want to, you know, they force people to undress and then they record that and just put it up on TikTok for follows and mm. likes and things like that. So even that experience itself is a punishment, but pre-trial detention is the real, I guess, ace in the hole. It's a look at. It doesn't matter that there is no real hope. There is no real hope that you could convict this person of engaging in canon knowledge against the order of nature, which was the offense before. They would still send the person to to police, I mean to court, and then the person would be uh, detained. And right now what we are seeing is that magistrates are showing increasingly showing reluctance you know uh you have people charged with acts of gross indecency the maximum punishment is 14 years imprisonment very bailable offense they have the sureties they have they meet every requirement and the magistrate simply says homosexuality is a matter of grave public concern in uganda right now so we cannot give you bail because of that which is not right and you know the people go back to prison so you have people who are being who are staying on pre-trial remand for up to three or four months before the magistrates ever grant bail because that remand is in itself being used as a punishment. Well, I wanted to ask how the law is being perceived publicly in Uganda. I mean, I quoted the parliamentary speaker who supported the president signing the law, and she said that the president had, quote, answered the cries of our people in signing this bill. It's a little hard from our context here in the U.S., to believe that the cries of a people would be to create a 
potential death penalty for people who engage in consensual gay sex. What kind of support does the law have? How is it being perceived publicly there? We have recently began to see a very a curious phenomenon about how people react to this law when you explain what it criminalizes and what it covers. But previously, there was a lot of public hysteria around the law. People were excited, clamoring for parliament to pass this law. And you know, the speaker kept feeding that hysteria, mm. inviting people and telling them, we shall be debating this law tomorrow. Please come to the gallery, watch your TVs, see how your MP will vote so that you can confirm if you have a member of parliament representing you or a homosexual, you know? So I think that we have um, had over the last uh, six, maybe six, six, seven months, we've had uh, leaders creating a narrative of LGBTQ people that they are essentially simply sexual predators. They are just rapists. So now the majority of the population is concerned because there is an ongoing, an ongoing narrative that LGBT people are looking to rape every child that they see. They are simply rapists. They are looking to rape your children. So protect your children. Get rid of gay people. And that narrative has it, uh, hit a peak, I think, in February, but it has persisted since at least December of last year, and it just keeps growing. So that fed a lot of the public support we saw around the bill with even uh, local local leaders, uh, Muslim leaders, religious leaders holding marches through different parts of the country to garner support for the, uh, for the bill, to condemn being LGBT, to attack LGBTQ people. We had marches to the homes of people they knew in their area or they suspected to be queer, you know, challenging them to come out and, you know, uh, defend their queerness. You know, it, it was... It was massive. It was strange. The whole of, especially the months of March and April, it was insane. There was just no, um, there was, there was, there was basically, there was no sense. The conversation didn't make a lot of sense. It was so skewed. It was so bad. But uh, from airport, between April and May, we've had a lot of, a lot more sober voices discussing this in the media. Of course, a lot of them are discussing it uh, from the context that if we pass the law, now that we've passed the law, the Western world will, can't, will cut support. America is going to cut support to health, for, uh, I mean, financing for the health sector is going to be bad for all of us. But also a lot of people are coming out and having conversations around how this is bad for their families and their children. Parents of LGBTQ children publishing articles in the media, of course, that now that will be illegal, now that the law has passed. But while it was still a bill, we started to have more people reading the bill and understanding it and actually coming out to speak boldly about it. And now every time you have the chance to explain this to um, a colleague of mine was discussing this with uh, local leaders in a district uh, somewhere deep in the, in the western region, in Bunyoro region in Uganda here. And they were all shocked and they said, but this has nothing to do with us. Okay, so maybe gay people are bad, but we shouldn't be killing them. So there are now some pockets of, of support, people coming out. But, you know, of course, it's too late. The president himself has come out and said, I think that was a mistake. We went a bit too far. And, of course, he has blamed the attorney general for that. But by the time he said it, it, it was not right, we went too far, the law had been signed. So there was nothing to be done. He had signed it. The deed was done. There, there's very little left now to do except to go back to court. So the support is coming through now for LGBTQ rights, but it's a little bit late. But when the law passed, yes, it did have quite an overwhelming amount of support. We're going to get into challenging the law in just a minute, but I wanted to take one other pathway before we do that. And just to let our listeners know, that's the voice of Justin Balia, the director of the Access to Justice program at Uganda's Human Rights Awareness and Promotion Forum, a local non-government organization in Kampala. We're talking about Uganda's new extreme homophobic law. Justine, 
it seems like some of the reason for creating this law has to do with a fear around HIV and AIDS. And while HIV and AIDS have been distinguished completely in medicine from sexuality, apparently there's a perception in Uganda that there's a connection and people have some fears. Can you talk about the context and prevalence of AIDS and HIV in Uganda and how that virus impacts daily life there and also around the fears that are stoked around it? Right. So we have had um, we've had challenges with the, the, the classification of key populations to include men who have sex with men, um, transgender persons, sex workers, people who use and eject drugs. This um, pathologization of the communities, it has fed an unfortunate narrative among the commun- among people, some of the general population, that people who identify as sex workers, people who are sex workers, must be HIV positive. People who are LGBT, men who are having sex with other men, must be living with HIV. Transgender women must be living with HIV, which um, it creates a certain, uh, I guess, degree of discrimination, of stigma against these communities. There is definitely some, there are some issues there with how... Uh, with how LGBTQ people and other communities have been reduced to disease, you know, to, to, to terms of diseases, I guess, for purposes of programming and health support and ETC. And while that has been helpful in the sense that it has at least allowed uh, this, all of our communities to come to care, to come to, to the service providers to get the support that we need, it has also created an impression in the minds of uh, many of the ordinary populations that LGBTQ people, that sex workers, are essentially their diseased populations. I am sorry to use that word. Uh, while we, are, while the statistics, of course, are worrying that uh, among the key populations, the prevalence rate is so many more times higher than the national average. Uh, the national average is at 3.7, I believe. And uh, among, for example, uh, transgender persons and MSM, it has been estimated at almost 32%, which is a very high uh it's a very high figure. It only serves to, to fuel stigma against these communities, to fuel HIV stigma, rather than to uh, area the desire for a law like this. It is my belief that this moral panic is more to do with people's innate desire, first of all, to protect their children, but also with this rarefied view of what African culture looks like that has been sold so aggressively across different countries in Africa that uh, this conversation that we are having in Uganda, it's exactly the same conversation that is happening in Kenya, the same exact conversation that is happening in Ghana, for example. The conversation is beginning in other countries like Mali, uh, even with our different, slightly at least, differing HIV contexts. So I wouldn't say that uh, the fear of HIV is driving the demand for this law because the HIV question was not even discussed at all in Parliament. In fact, uh, when, whenever it came up, it was in the sense that we need, still need money from Western countries for the fight against HIV. And almost always the response was, we shall find another way, we shall survive. And uh, popular slogan here, and if we die, we die. Wow. Well, you said the fear of HIV may not be dri- uh, driving the law. I did read that the law itself may be creating fear among people who have HIV and AIDS. I read that since the law was passed, HIV and AIDS treatment centers in in Kampala are almost empty because people are afraid to go to the clinic because they could be targeted and arrested under the law. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is is that the case? Is that the story that you're hearing on the ground there? Yes, and this was a completely expected outcome. It was a completely expected outcome because this law, uh, this act requires people to report people that they suspect to be engaged in homosexuality. That if you have a reason to suspect that somebody is engaged in homosexuality, then you're required by law to go to the nearest police station and report. And the worst part is that this section also 
it um it exempts providers who are required by professional ethics to keep confidential the information they get from their clients are now allowed to report the client to the police without repercussions. So now there is no trust whatsoever between the clients, between the patients and the health workers. It's no longer possible for a gay man to simply walk up to a health facility and say, hi, I am not, I'm feeling this way and I worry that maybe it might be because of, uh, maybe because of something to do with my sexuality or because of my sex practice, for example. Some of these questions have become, some of these issues have become impossible for people to handle. But even when people haven't faced direct discrimination, that demand has gone down. That people are now less willing to simply walk themselves to a facility and ask for some kinds of services. They are less willing to go to facilities unless they absolutely must. And it should also be noted that previously, LGBTQ people were getting services more from what we call community drop-in centers than from government health facilities. That even at government health facilities, the way that uh, people were gotten into care was through the peer approach that uh, they established what we called friendly corners or, uh, or uh, STI clinics, HIV clinics, specialized clinics where there was a health worker that has been oriented on issues that mostly affect key populations, on issues of marginalization and how that affects the desire to seek care, ETC. Now, those places have also become unsafe because, first of all, there is the fear that these health workers might report. But drop-in centers have almost entirely closed now because we have key leaders, especially political leaders, uh, coming out and saying strongly that they do not believe in the concept of community DICs. They imagine community drop-in centers are just recruitment facilities. A resident district commissioner in, uh, I think, the district is Barra, said that recently, that he intends to close down every single community drop-in center in his district because as far as he's concerned, that's a recruitment center. It's being used to teach people to be gay. And with the, the criminalization of promotion of homosexuality with those insane uh, penalties, it makes sense that even people who want to operate the drop-in centers might be um, otherwise prevented. So from community DICs, we, are, we definitely see a huge drop in attendance and even in willingness of the health work of the people who work there to simply go to work. Because, you know, if you're charged with promotion of homosexuality and convicted as an individual, the penalty could be up to 20 years imprisonment. As an organization, you would be required to pay a fine of 1 billion Uganda shillings, which is about, uh, it's just under 300,000 US dollars, and lose, lose your license as a corporation. So it's, it's extreme. And this does not spare children either. You know, so while an a person is at liberty to choose not to report adults that they believe are engaging in homosexuality. If a person suspects a child to be a homosexual, to be engaged in homosexuality, they have an absolute duty to report with a criminal sanction if they don't, five years imprisonment, which is going to cause some interesting dilemmas for parents of LGBTQ children who are already out. Because if a parent suspects that their child is engaged in homosexuality and they do not report that, and it's later discovered, the child goes to prison for three years, regardless of their age, and the parent goes to prison for five years for non-reporting, for failing to protect the child from homosexuality. It's, um, it's, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. And yes, uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but we, we, we did have this argument with the legislators before, and we, we, we've consistently said this, that this law is going to hurt the fight against HIV because people are simply going to be driven away from care. And it's not just LGBTQ people. 
Uh, in January, the NGO Bureau published a whole report around organizations that they believed were promoting homosexuality, and the majority of the organizations that were targeted were service organizations that were working with key populations on health service provisions, provision of um, health commodities, medications, etc. Uh, quick centers near their home where they can get for services without judgment, without discrimination. So these organizations were targeted, published in the media, very widely shared all over social media, and accused of promotion of homosexuality. And that the, the, the chief at the NGO bureau actually came out and said, yeah, that's our report. We said it, we stand by it. You know, the Minister of Internal Affairs tried to deny it, but that the, the NGO board chairs came and said, you know, that's our report. We issued it, we stand by it. So many of these organizations were later targeted by their landlords, by their neighbors, evicted from their premises. So even service provision among communities of sex workers, for instance, has gone down. They are less able now to access services because of these attacks against their organizations that the organizations that were covered were LGBTQ organizations, there were sex work-led organizations, organizations that were serving people who use and inject drugs. The entire KP community was basically attacked, and that attack does not seem to, it doesn't seem like it will stop merely because the law focuses so much on homosexuality. It does seem to just simply target everybody. That's the voice of Justine Balia, the Director of Access to Justice Program at Uganda's Human Rights Awareness and Promotion Forum, a local non-governmental organization. We're talking about Uganda's new and extreme homophobic law. There's one other side of that same question I just wanted to follow up on is that I've read that the laws against gay people have made some people also flee, leaving their homes to go to other countries that might feel safer for them, essentially as refugees afraid of the violence of this law. What do you know about that experience? So the clamor to seek asylum has definitely started because, you know, I, I, it might be difficult for a person to imagine this, but the panic, the anxiety here is real. So many queer people haven't been able to freely move out of their houses and go to the market, for example, in weeks. That uh, there's, there's a lot of fear about uh, how you look because, you know, Right now, people are identifying homosexuals in court by simply how you look, how you talk, who you're talking to. We've had people who have been evicted, harassed, beaten, the threats of the, the actual violence, because how can you be a 35-year-old woman who has never married or brought a man home? Clearly, you must be a lesbian. These are the things that people are basing on to attack people. So, so many parts of this country are now truly unsafe for LGBTQ people, and not just in principle, but in actual out of actual experience. So, so many people are clamoring to seek asylum anywhere. Unfortunately, that's also not as easy as it sounds because, you know, um, the, the process of seeking asylum requires you first of all to get a visa to a country where you want to go and getting visas for the LGBTQ community, especially when you consider the fact that uh, many of them are not of very comfortable means. So we've had more people flocking to Kenya and Rwanda, for example. Not that it's safer there, but it's relatively safer in the sense that they aren't known there. So the people who can uh, afford to find these visas and afford to leave Uganda and fly to the U.S., to Canada, to the U.K., they are doing that. They are trying to do that. So so many people are trying to find, to look for visas, seek asylum, just in case this thing does not go away. But a lot of other people just don't have the option. They don't have the option of uh, flying to Canada. A lot of LGBTQ people do not have the luxury or the privilege. We know that there are some engagements with some governments and some embassies here in Uganda, in Kampala, to talk about the issuance of humanitarian visas, especially to human rights defenders who have been vocal around LGBTQ issues and whose sexuality is a uh, public knowledge. And also for 
individuals who are truly at risk. And I, and we are all hoping that uh, these conversations will bear fruit because while we are doing everything that we can to fight this law, there is no telling how long that might take. And in the meantime, people's lives continue to be at constant risk. Wow. So you said you're doing everything you can to fight that law. I know your organization, the Human Rights Awareness and Promotion Forum, was part of a coalition that filed a petition challenging the new law. What's the process for changing the law? And given the president's support, do you feel optimistic about the potential to change it? Where are you at? And and what's the process with the Human Rights Awareness and Promotion Forum around changing that law? We are very we are very optimistic about the law being thrown out by court. Regardless of the support that the, the bill enjoyed throughout the process and uh, the passing of the act itself, we know that uh, if the courts are allowed to run independently if there is no political interference with this decision. It's very unlikely that the courts would come to the decision that this law is uh, constitutional because, first of all, the arguments in the petitions, it's not just um, our coalition that has filed a petition. There are three petitions right now uh, in the constitutional court that have been filed, and we know that the Attorney General's office has responded to one, so we are awaiting response to the other two. And all these petitions have somewhat similar grounds in a way that they all challenge, of course, that human rights violations, the fact that uh, so many sections of the new Anti-Homosexuality Act actually violate entrenched uh, human rights standards within the Constitution. But also beyond that, that the procedure itself was flawed. There was a lot of bias in Parliament when the law was being debated. Uh, the whole procedure was tainted with bias on the part of the Speaker, number one, but also there was not enough public consultation in terms of uh, the people, or, you know, reaching out to the people for their views, which is a constitutional requirement. So all of these, uh, all of these issues are definitely likely to play. They will play uh, positively for the process of uh, of attempting to annul this, uh, having this act annulled through the constitutional court. Because, like we said earlier, this is the only avenue right now. The president can't recall the law that he has already signed. The parliament no longer has jurisdiction. They can only do this by tabling a whole new private member's bill to amend the Anti-Homosexuality uh, Act. And that might be difficult given the amount of support that it still enjoys within the House. So since we cannot expect uh, the law to change through, uh, through the Parliament or through the President, the only remaining avenue is the judiciary. And, you know, with, uh, with everything that's going on, we just have to... Now, uh, the problem is that usually this process can take quite um, a while. But history suggests that maybe this will not. While the Constitutional Court can take up to five years to hear a case and dispose of it, in 2014, this the first petition against the first Anti-Homosexuality Act in 2014, or, or Loka Onyango and others, it was decided under four months, which was shocking. It was wonderful and it was surprising, but you know, it was a good thing. Now, because of the president's backtracking on so many aspects of this law right now, we have reason to hope that the courts will be allowed to make their decision uh, without political interference, but that also if the interference does happen, it will be in the sense that they're pushing the courts to work on the issue faster, resolve the issue faster. Uh, in any case, though, um, I do know that the petitioners, at least on two of these petitions, have filed applications for stay of the, of the enforcement of the act. So if we can get the court to stay enforcement of this act, perhaps that might limit the number of violations, especially coming from the state from the state actors in order to allow the courts some time to determine the substantive issues in the, in the, in the petition. Our hope, of course, is that the entire law is thrown out for being unconstitutional. But if that does not happen, we are also hoping that we can get some positive human rights proclamations around all of the sections. So uh, from my reading of all three petitions, it would seem that 
every single section in the act is being challenged in court. So, you know, a win would be a good thing in the sense that uh, either we get the whole law thrown out without even without it being looked at by the court for being procedurally improper, or we finally get the court to pronounce itself once and for all on equality, freedom from discrimination, and the right to dignity and security of the person for LGBTQ people in Uganda. You've mentioned a few times that the president himself, who did sign this into law last month, is backtracking and has his own reservations. It's very rare here in the U.S., that we have a lawmaker who goes through the entire legal process to sign a new law in and then regrets it immediately after. Can you talk about those reservations and and how that's coming about? Like, why is this changing so quickly? It might... it might just be entirely political on his part, but the first uh, the first time that he expressed these reservations, um, because uh, we he signed the law the act into law on the twenty sixth of May that was a Friday, and on 29th of May it was announced publicly by the Speaker of Parliament that the President had signed the act into law, and that very evening he made the very first step. I guess, to try and take back what had been done. And he said that uh, while he still strongly believes that homosexuality is wrong, he does not believe that we should be looking for homosexuals in their houses. We should leave them and focus only on those ones who are raping children and trying to recruit children into homosexuality and those who are grooming children to become homosexuals and those who are raping others. So in this, he was he seemed to be leaning heavily in favor of simply focusing on a predatorial and abusive conduct. You know, and saying that consensual relations between two adults, we should just leave that alone. There is nothing really wrong with that, which was interesting. And then, uh, you know, as the speech wore on, he continued and said something like, um, this lady from the World Bank called me and she made me see that we had made some errors. There are some issues we need to discuss again in the bill, in the act, because, Uh, uh, yes, about uh, promotion of homosexuality, specifically about the right to property uh, premises that the owner of a premises is liable if they grant to a person who uses their premises for the promotion of homosexuality. And, you know, he said, and uh, he also talked about issues of um, inclusion and, uh, and, and diversity. And he said that a lady from the World Bank pointed out that employers should be encouraged to be inclusive, should be looked at again by parliament. We should uh, go slow a little bit and first discuss this again. So um, it uh, might be difficult to know exactly why the president uh, chooses to backtrack so quickly, but that when the first anti-homosexuality act was annulled, the MPs were jeering up to go back to parliament and table a new law and pass it with the appropriate quorum. And the president stopped them. He said, we, you guys need to go really slow on this homosexuality issue. Let it go. He actually said that publicly and they let it go. Even with this uh, with this process, there has been a lot of reluctance from him, the back and forth, sending the, the bill back to parliament with letters, please review this, change that, etc. There has been a bit of back and forth, but the politics of the time, I think, might have demanded some kind of action from him. Like the speaker said, there was quite a lot of public support for the act. It would have been fully going against the majority opinion for the president to decline to assent to the act. So maybe the, the public statements about retracting on some parts are simply encouragement to the only body of government remaining with the power to do something about this, to do the right thing. We can only hope. And it may also have to do with uh, pushes from the, the international community, right? I know that there's been some conversations, certainly from the U.S. as well as other countries, about withdrawing financial support or programs that are brought into Uganda from the international community. 
Absolutely. Yes, those conversations definitely have a lot to do that, that diplomatic um, dialogues, discourses with the president. They have certainly contributed. I know he has only uh, publicly acknowledged the World Bank, but uh, we are aware that there is so many foreign missions here, so many donor aid entities that have been trying to uh, to engage. So there is, there's definitely a lot of dialogue that is going on there uh, from the health service delivery, from the private sector, from civil society, from the donor community. And we are hopeful that this is all uh, bearing some fruit. But obviously, uh, on the president, he can't undo what has been done. Nevertheless, these statements are helpful because um, we know that judicial independence is still very much a dream of the future here in Uganda. That if uh, the president were to stay out of it entirely and do nothing, they must still rule in our favor because the arguments are valid, we believe. But with the president offering some kind of guidance about how he would like them to rule, that would definitely help our cause. We are all for judicial independence, but maybe in this one case. <laughs> That's right. We are just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you one more question. Your organization, the Human Rights Awareness and Promotion Forum, is specifically involved in challenging this law. We talked about how the law is already impacting people um, who are gay or people who are providing services or could be providing services to people who are gay or lesbian. I'm wondering if you could talk about the experience of the organization advocating to end this law. Is it dangerous at all for the organization to oppose it publicly? There is some risk, yes. There is a degree of risk to the work of uh, publicly challenging that. The potential of getting, you know, uh, summons or even just a revocation of our license from the NGO Bureau for Promotion of Homosexuality. Because, like I said earlier, the way that section is defined, it's... It's so broad, it's so it's so wide sweeping that it would easily even cover this conversation be considered promotion of homosexuality. So there is a risk there for the organization, but frankly, we have been a lot more concerned about the risk for the community that we are serving because you know, as a legal aid service provider, as an organization that primarily identifies as lawyers, we enjoy a certain degree of privilege, even in law enforcement, that uh, the police officers can be offensive, but they cannot be physically abusive to the lawyers in much the same way that they are casually abusive to LGBTQ people. There is, of course, a degree of risk for the personnel, and we have done everything that we can to mitigate that risk. But the real problem right now is for the people in the, for the LGBTQ community members out there, for the people in the communities where they are living, in their families, in their neighborhoods, and the degree of risk to which they have been exposed. So, it, it does bear some risk for us, but it's also work that has to be done. So you find that uh, there's so many players right now from uh, the Convening for Equality, other LGBTQ organizations in Uganda, like the Uganda Key Populations Consortium, the REACT program, that are all struggling despite grave personal risk to their staff and also to the organizations themselves, to their very existence, to do something about this because doing nothing is also not really an option. And uh, the the hate and the, 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 you know, the hate around this is so public that there might not be quite, they, there might not be a lot that can be achieved by, you know, trying to engage quietly on that front, that the space for quiet and diplomatic engagement that passed when the law hadn't been signed yet. From the moment that it was signed, all the gloves are off. So we we just have to, get on with it, see that it gets done, because otherwise the impact could be truly catastrophic for the LGBTQ community. Wow. So Justine, that's about all the time we have in our program. Is there anything you'd like to add that that we haven't talked about just briefly? 
Uh, no, I do believe that we have covered everything except uh, maybe, of course, just expressing our gratitude to all the partners, all the individuals who have donated time, opinions, voices, money, uh, personnel, resources, anything at all towards this fight because, you know, that, that support has been really, really invaluable for the LGBTQ community in Uganda. From responding to the everyday abuses that people are going through right now to things like challenging the law in parliament, to even just building up the necessary support for the LGBTQ community to continue to engage, to enjoy at least some degree of, uh, of rights during this period. It's been invaluable. And of course, the conversations that we are having, regardless of the risks, they are, they are so, they are useful. They are useful for us because, you know, they keep us aware of what is happening, but they also help us to make other people aware of what's going on. That even here in Uganda, there are people who are supporting this act because they don't know exactly what it criminalizes or what it says. The more conversation, the more that we can reach out to them with information about what this has done to their siblings and their children and their neighbors. Perhaps the less support it will, uh, you know, perhaps the, our national conscience will finally get some remorse around this and we can see some real significant change for the future. Well, we hope that that change comes swiftly and we thank you for your work from across the world, from California. We are grateful for your time and for the work that you're doing. Justine, we wish you the best in your challenge to this law and thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. That's the voice of Justine Balia, the director of the Access to Justice program at Uganda's Human Rights Awareness and Promotion Forum, a local non-governmental organization in Kampala. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>